Okay, tonight we're going to talk about conversion, and I heard Audrey and some of y'all discussing it before we, before we started, so I think you got a pretty good grasp of it. So uh, we should have a good, good time together, good discussion. I want to back up a little bit uh, leading into conversion and, and uh, just kind of talk for a couple of minutes about uh, last week. Paul led our study last week, uh, and we looked at the doctrine of regeneration, which is defined as the secret act of God in which he imparts a new spiritual life to us. Uh, the question was asked last week, I'll ask it again. Why is regeneration a secret? Why is it a secret? Y'all remember? Why is regeneration a secret? Well, I think we said last week that regeneration is kind of secretive because it's, it's really mysterious to us. Um, someone who is spiritually dead is made alive or becomes reborn. The term that we're familiar with or most familiar with is born again. You know, we Baptists understand that, born again. Uh, only when you get to be high Baptist can you say regeneration. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, it's a work of God within us, and it's an instant, instantaneous event. The term that we're familiar with, like I said, is born again, and uh, it's really a awakening. God awakens the spiritual life within us, and, which allows us to respond to God in faith and repentance to the effective call of the gospel. When we say regeneration comes before faith, it's important for us to understand that they generally come so close together that it will ordinarily seem to us that they're happening at the same time. We typically believe or feel like we hear the gospel, we respond in faith, with repentance, and then we are regenerated. But no, God provides the effective call of the gospel to us. Then he regenerates us, and then almost simultaneously, we respond with faith and repentance. It's only when we're regenerated by God are we able to respond with faith and repentance. Well, this brings us to this evening subject, which is conversion. How would you define conversion? How would you define conversion? Change. Yeah, in a, in a simple way, it's a change. Yeah. Change. Yeah. Big change, spiritually. I, I like what it, what it said in the text that Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of our sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. So the elements consist of willing response, sincerely repent of our sins, and placing our trust in Christ for salvation. The word uh, conversion itself means turning. 
represented by a spiritual turning from sin to Christ. This turning from sin is called repentance, and the turning to Christ is called faith. True saving faith consists of three elements. Knowledge, approval, and personal trust. What does it mean to have knowledge of Christ? What does that mean? Have knowledge of Christ. You know about him. Yeah, you know about him. I had uh, some uh, Jesus, uh, what we used to call them, Jesus children or Jesus something back in the 60s. Jesus Stop me on, Jesus what? Jesus priest. Yeah, okay. I was trying to be nice. <laughs> Stop me on the street one time uh, back in, the, I guess the 70s. He said, excuse me, sir, but do you know Jesus? I said, yes, I do. He said, no, I'm not, you not know about him, but you know him personally. And I said, I know him personally as my Lord and Savior. And we had a good discussion. Um, so it's very important. In fact, it's essential that we have a knowledge uh, of Jesus. Why do we need to have knowledge of Jesus? Why is that so essential then? <coughs> well, somebody <coughs> read the first scripture. Uh, the writer of Romans tells us in uh, Romans 10, 14. Who has that? Okay, the question, why do we need to have a knowledge of Jesus? The question here is answered by a question. It's important to have a knowledge of Jesus. Uh, but just having a knowledge or knowing about Jesus is not enough. Uh, who has James 2.19? Okay, you know, even the demons have knowledge of God, have knowledge of Jesus. Uh, they, ha have a, they know the facts about Jesus' life and his saving works. You know, I'm always amazed when I hear religious experts, so to speak, scholars, if you will, like uh, Jewish rabbis and uh, Muslim imams talk about Jesus. You know, many of them are far more knowledgeable about Jesus uh, than most Christians are. They've studied the scriptures, and they know a great deal about Jesus. But the knowledge that they possess does not mean that they're saved. They just know about it. We may know the facts about Jesus and approve or agree that they are true, but this alone is not enough. Let's look at Nicodemus. Every time I think about Nicodemus talking to Jesus, I always go back to the uh, uh, to Chip talking to to uh, um, Greg. Yeah, when, when we did the uh, did the, did the play, uh, and, and that comes back to me a lot. It's just like so real. You know, they they enacted this, these very verses here. Who has uh, John three one through three? Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Okay. Well, here we see that Nicodemus had a knowledge about Jesus' teaching and his miracles. He was very familiar with him. And, and he evaluated the facts, and he came to the conclusion that Jesus was a teacher, come from God. But this did not mean that Nicodemus had acquired saving faith because he still not, had not put his trust in Christ for, for salvation. Another account was with King Agrippa, and he provides us with another example of someone who demonstrated knowledge and approval, but lacks saving faith. Who has Acts 26, 26 through 28? But the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Even though King Agrippa had knowledge and approval of the facts, he would not show a saving faith. It's important and necessary for us to have knowledge of who Jesus is. And we must approve or agree that based on the evidence, he is who he says he is. However, in order to be saved, we must depend upon Jesus to save us. It's not enough that we know about him and that we trust and believe in, in, in the facts concerning him. We must depend on him to save us. And, and this is what's called saving faith. Well, just what is saving faith? Saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person being God's own son for forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God. Saving faith is more than just a belief or an acceptance of the facts about Jesus. It requires personal trust. <coughs> Gruden says that trust is often a better word to use in our contemporary culture than the words faith or belief. I thought that was good. I, I, I had to meditate on that and ponder that. He was exactly right. Um, trust is a better word for us to use and understand than just the words faith or belief. Faith, the faith or belief is a, is a trusting faith or a trusting belief. Um, he says that we can believe something is true without involving any personal commitment or dependence to what we profess to believe. I can believe that six times six is 36. Cold hard fact, six times six is 36. Learn that in school, learn your multiplication tables. That's a fact, believe it. Without any, I don't have any personal commitment to it. It's just what it is. And I don't have any dependence upon it. I just accept it as fact. Having faith that your favorite team is going to win the championship, like the Falcons, 
That requires a lot of faith. But having that kind of faith, even though they continue to lose games, might be a bit irrational. So in these two examples, belief and faith have meanings that are contrary to the biblical sense of faith. Grudem says the word trust is closer to the biblical idea because we are familiar with trusting people in everyday life. Let me ask you, how do we come to trust another person? How do you come to trust someone? Usually they, they demonstrate it. They, they've proven <coughs> it in some way that you can trust them. Okay. Usually. Knowing them. Knowing them. Getting to know them is the main thing. Uh, you know, I can say I trust you as my pastor, but in the last many years, 15, 30, how long have you been here? All the years you've been here, I, I've come to trust him more and more because I, I, I hear his messages and so every Sunday I sit under his teachings and, and you develop more trust by getting to know someone better. Uh, the idea, an example of personal trust is spoken of in several places in Scripture. For instance, uh, who's got John 1.12? Yet to all who believe him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who receive him. John implies here, much like we would receive a guest in our home. I don't know about you, but I just don't let anybody stay at my house. Uh, not this day and time anyway. Uh, you know, you'd have to know them. You'd have to trust them to invite them in to be your... You know, some of my relatives, I don't even know that about them, but be that as it may, uh, you, you would have to trust somebody, uh, usually to invite them to be a guest in your home. And that's kind of what John is, is saying here. Uh, to all who received him, implying like we would receive a guest in our home. Also, John 3.16. Uh, who's got that? For God so loved the world that he gave his own begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay. The word used here is whosoever believes in him. Not just believes him. Don't say whoever believes in him. Whosoever believes in him. Uh, and expresses a personal trust that, again, is what's involved and saving faith. Who's got John 6.37? That's me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Matthew 11.28-30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. These passages just read communicate the idea of coming to Christ and asking for acceptance and for rest and for instruction. These are very personal examples of what is involved in saving faith. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Learn of me, 
and you will find rest for your souls. So, when a person comes to Christ, three things must be present in their lives. First, they must have a knowledge or an understanding of the facts of the gospel. They must have a knowledge or an understanding of the facts of the gospel. Second, they must approve or agree with the facts presented in the gospel, especially the truth that they are a sinner in need of salvation and that Christ alone has paid the penalty for their sin and offers them salvation. Third, they have a desire to be saved. They have a desire to be saved. This reminds me of the old story. How many psychiatrists, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Anybody know? Actually, it only takes one, but the light bulb really has to want to change. <laughs> so, so I, I, I divert here a little bit, but they have to have a desire to be saved. And they must make a decision to trust in Jesus as their Savior. This is not only a decision of the mind, but a decision of the heart. The heart being the central facility of the entire being, the whole person. It's not just a philosophical or a mental decision uh, that you make when you turn to Christ. It involves your whole being, essence of who you are. Well, next we see that faith and repentance must come together. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. Let me read that again. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, renouncing it, and a sincere commitment for, to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. Gruden explains that repentance is an intellectual understanding uh, when it's just an intellectual understanding is wrong. It's also, you know, by itself, but it's also more than that. It's an emotional approval of the teachings of scripture regarding sin, a renouncing of sin, a sorrow for sin and a hatred of it. It's a personal decision to turn from it, to renounce it, to decide to forsake it, and to lead a life of obedience to Christ. Genuine repentance results in a changed life. Let me ask you, do you think that Evan, the evidence of a changed life is instantaneous. Person converts, they get saved. Are they instantaneously life changed? No, no, no. Yes, no. I, th 
think, yes, I know. I, I've, I've seen them. In one so. sense, yes, that's regeneration. Mm -hmm. But in another sense, sanctification, it continues through the rest of their life. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, how about you, but I'm still working hard on that. Uh, uh, but I have seen evidence, and I'm sure you have too, in some people's life where there's a big change uh, right away. Uh, I'll share with you, I may have shared this with some of you, the story of my father. My dad was, uh, he was a hard man. He, he lived a simple life. He, uh, uh, he worked in construction, was in the army, and, and uh, he couldn't say three words without two of them being profanity. And we'd go to visit him, and uh, he, would, he would curse, and, and uh, Vivian would just jump all over him. She couldn't stand it. She said, well, I'm not going to have my children around this. We're just not going to come see you if, if, you, you, know, if, if you can't control uh, your speech. And my dad really respected Vivian. He, he, uh, he, he uh, told me several times that you know, she appreciated the way she'd stand up to him. And he would try as he might not to cuss. And he was particularly gifted, if you use that word, it's not really a good example, but he, he, he could use the Lord's name in vain just about like an army drill instructor or something. He was, he was pretty proficient at that. When my dad was saved, I never again heard him swear. From that moment on, he never again cursed. Now, he lived three more months. He had terminal cancer. And when he fell on his knees and called on the Lord to save him, I mean, it was regeneration. It was saving faith. It was repentance. It was all that come together. And, and that was, to me, like a miracle because in that one instance, uh, uh, it, was, um, it was evident like that, he was changed. Uh, so it can happen. For most of us, it, it's not that dramatic. We have to work on it throughout our, throughout our life and our walk. Um, so you can see evidence of a, of, a, of a changed life. Sometimes it's instantaneous. Um, let me ask you this then. People are sorry for their sin. They repent. I'm sorry. I'm, uh, I apologize. Uh, does sorrow alone constitute repentance? Yes, no? What do you think? No? Well, I told that story before we started about guys in prison. Every one of them, they're sorry. Every one of them are sorrowful. Mostly they're sorry they got caught. Uh, they're, they're not repentant. But uh, no, just being sorrow does not constitute repentance. Uh, <coughs> it's got Acts 20, 21. <coughs> um, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must be that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Repentance toward God, it says, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance, faith is together in this scripture. 
Who's got Second uh, Corinthians 7, 9 through 10? I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Being sorry for our actions without necessarily producing any lasting change is worldly repentance. But a godly grief, an awareness that it is God who we have offended, this produces a sincere repentance, the results of which is a changed life. The fruit of repentance is a changed life. If we have truly repented, if we've truly been converted based on our, our repentance, our trust, our acceptance of Christ, uh, there ought to, we ought to see change in our life. It ought to be evident. Maybe not as dramatic as my dad's was, but over time, you know, uh, I'm not the man I was, not the man I had I need to be, but we're all, we're all you know, in process, so to speak. Um, repentance and faith are actually different aspects of the same act of coming to Christ. Salvation. A person doesn't just turn from sin and trust in Christ, nor do they trust in Christ and turn from their sin. Both turning from sin and trusting in Christ happen at the same time. <clears throat> when we turn to Christ for salvation from our sins, at the same time we're turning away from our sins, we're asking Christ to save us from. In this way, conversion involves faith and repentance. When a person turns to Christ in faith for salvation, at the same time, they have to let go or repent from the sins to which they have been clinging. In the book, and I heard Audrey talking about this, I thought this was a really, really good example. In the book, they show a little depiction of the act of conversion. It shows a non-Christian clinging to their sins with their back to Jesus. Then it says that when that person experiences conversion in a single action, they turn from their sin. They let go of it. They turn to Jesus and embrace him. The sin's gone. They, let, they turn loose of it. They didn't take it with them. They had a little formula in there that was true. It says repentance plus faith equals conversion. We've all heard it said that someone can accept Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Someone can accept Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. What does that mean, and what does that look like? People accepting Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord? Fire insurance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what they used to preach, wasn't it? I'm afraid we got a lot of people that 
that uh, are in that camp. They, they, uh, and I'm afraid all of us are from time to time. Sometimes we, we acknowledge him as our Savior, but not, not as our Lord as often as we should. Uh, when somebody accepts Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord, has this person truly experienced conversion? Have they? What do you think? Can it be either or? Yeah, we can't have him on our terms. I can't say, well, you know, Jesus, I want you as my Savior. I'm glad to welcome you as my Savior, but I don't really need you to be or want you to be Lord over my life. Then we really haven't been converted. We really, we really hold, like that guy holding on to our sin. We turn to him, but we still got our sin. We haven't let go of it, and we haven't embraced him. We're standing there with a sin, making our demands on life. So that's the way it works. <clears throat> when Jesus invites us to come unto him and to take his yoke upon us, he's telling us to get in sync with him, to come under his direction and his guidance, to learn from him and to be obedient to him. If we, are un, if we are unwilling to make such a commitment, then we have not truly placed our trust in him. Remember, true faith involves complete trust, not just occasional trust, and not just conditional trust. <laughs> True faith involves complete trust. When scripture speaks of trusting in God or in Christ, it frequently connects such trust to genuine repentance. Who has Isaiah 55, 6 through 7? Who has? You say Isaiah? Isaiah, yes. 55? Yes, 6 and 7. <coughs> Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Hmm. That's a beautiful text. Beautiful scripture. Uh, we see this testimony of this type typically uh, in, in, of this trust in, in, in the Old Testament. These verses express both the repentance of sin and the coming to God for pardon. The author of Hebrews also includes the elements of repentance and faith. Uh, who's got Hebrews 6 1? Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. All right. This verse speaks of repentance from dead works, faith 
toward God. And many passages in Scripture emphasize faith alone is what is necessary for coming to Christ. And we use these verses to explain the gospel to those who are lost. I'm sure you've heard that said a lot. You know, faith, come to faith in Christ. Um, again, we look at John 16, which we've already read, but also look at uh, Acts 16.31. Who has that? Romans 10.9. Romans 10.9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Ephesians 2.8 and 9. <coughs> For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. These verses express both elements, repentance and faith. Um, yet there are many other passages where only repentance is named and it, it assures the true, that true repentance also involves faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Genuine faith and true repentance go hand in hand. And when the authors of the New Testament mentions one, it's understood or implied that the other is also necessary. <coughs> necessary for the forgiveness of sin. Look at what Jesus told his disciples just before he ascended into heaven. Luke 24, 46-47. Okay, Dave, I'm going to start with 45, if I may. He then opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in, in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Although not specifically named, Saving faith is certainly implied in the phrase forgiveness of sin. At Pentecost, look at what Peter said to the crowd after he had preached, and they wanted to know what they must be, do in order to be saved. And he responded in Acts 2, 37 and 38. Who has that? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart <coughs> and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, Peter speaking in Solomon's portico, or his porch, in Acts 3.19. Who has that? <clears throat> Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. 
And again, when the apostles were arrested in Acts 5.31. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Then we have Paul's words in Acts 17.30. And Paul again speaks in Romans 2.4. Romans 2.4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing <coughs> that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? I think Gruden makes an excellent point when he says, when we realize that genuine faith must be accompanied by genuine repentance for sin, it helps us to understand why some preaching of the gospel has such inadequate results today. Let me read that again. When we realize that genuine faith must be accompanied by genuine repentance for sin, it helps us to understand why some preaching of the gospel has such inadequate results today. If there is no mention of the need for repentance, sometimes the gospel message becomes only believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Without any mention of repentance at all. He says that this is a watered down version of the gospel that does not ask for a wholehearted commitment to Christ. If it is to be genuine, then our commitment to Christ must include a commitment to turn from sin. Preaching faith without preaching commitment is only preaching half of the gospel. And this results in people being deceived. They will think they are saved <coughs> when in reality without repenting from their sin they have not made a commitment to Christ, and their sin still separates them from God. They are still lost. What do y'all think? Is he right? Is that a fair and honest assessment? I think Luke's sermon on Sunday pretty much spelled that out. As Christians, we often think that faith and repentance are the marks of our conversion, and we may tend to leave them there. When we were converted, we had faith and And that's where we were in the beginning of our Christian life. But as we mature, 
in our Christian walk, we should come to know that faith and repentance are attitudes of the heart that will remain with us throughout our Christian lives. Jesus told us to pray. Forgive us our sins as we also at forgiving those who sin against us. This is a prayer of repentance. Regarding faith, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. These three will abide not only throughout our lifetime, but they will abide for all eternity. If faith is trusting God to supply all of our needs, then this assurance will continue. It will continue on in this life and throughout eternity. Each day, we should experience heartfelt repentance for our sins and a renewed faith in Christ to provide for our needs and to empower us to live the Christian life. That's pretty much the... Uh, the topic of conversion. Y'all have any thoughts that we didn't cover? Any questions? Dave, I uh, <coughs> often think of the old songs that we used to sing, and that was one I don't know the title of that, but it says, Trust and obey. walk with the Lord in the light of his word what a blessing we feel here in the way when we do his good will he abides with us still if only we trust and obey something like that trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy with Jesus to trust and obey I spared you the singing but I hope <laughs> other thoughts wow y'all finished early tonight I don't know if that's allowed yeah, that's what I'm saying. Jerry's back next week. You back next week? He's back next week, then I'm back the week after next. Share anything with us from Birmingham?